Welcome to All Along the Wasatch, a public affairs program produced by Bonneville Salt Lake City. If you would like to submit a request to be on the show, please email mparsons at ksl.com. Now, here's the host of All Along the Wasatch, Mike Parsons. My guests this morning are from the in-between, and that's with two ends, the in-between. We have the CEO and Executive Director, Jillian Olmstead, and Community Engagement Manager, Kelly Miramet. And the website for the in-between is tibhospice.org. We had them on, oh gosh, a couple of years ago now, and I've been anxious to have them back on because it's such a unique nonprofit doing such amazing work in our community. And I think you're one of those nonprofits that flies under the radar a little bit sometimes. Um, And so hopefully we can uh, let some other people know about what you're doing. Jillian, maybe you could just start with kind of the elevator speech on what is the in-between, what is it you do, and who do you serve? Sure. Thank you for having us. So The In-Between is a nonprofit that's been around for about eight years. We are a 50-bed facility in Salt Lake, and we are providing medical respite and end-of-life care for individuals experiencing homelessness. Um, So the two qualifiers are that you are unsheltered and that maybe you're needing hospice services or you need a place to stay to receive a life-saving surgery, chemotherapy, um, things like that. And so the name of your nonprofit sort of has double meaning. It's the in-between, where for these people are sort of in-between two different things, but it's also the I-N-N, an in, where you would stay. Um, and I think that's really clever, but also kind of really describes what you do. Right. Yeah, we're trying to be a home-like environment for individuals. And the idea came from a nurse up at Huntsman Cancer Institute and They just needed a place to discharge individuals that were becoming too well to stay in the hospital Mm. but were too ill to go back to the streets. So they wanted it in between the hospital and the streets, and that's where this name came from. But then you're also kind of on the in-between on the other end of that, too, with people who are probably going to need those hospital services but aren't yet sick enough to be in the hospital. Right. Yes. Yep, there's there's lots of different ways to qualify to get into the facility, and it's not just end-of-life care. We really do want to try and catch people before they get to the point that they're needing hospice services and be able to just give them that that housing that allows them to to either receive dialysis or get their diabetes under control or get that surgery and recuperate from the surgery as well. So before we dig deeper, I kind of like to find out how people end up in the roles that they have. So Jillian, if you could just talk about kind of what's your history and how did you end up in your current role? Sure. Yeah. So I had um, a, a really good experience with hospice with both of my parents. They were diagnosed with cancer just a few weeks apart from each other, and they ended up passing about six weeks apart. Um, they both were good candidates for hospice care, and it was my introduction to it, and I was just in awe at how great it was that they were able to stay in their home. Um, they put in a stair lift for them and just made a really safe environment for them and allowed them to pass away in their home without having hospital stays. And it, it didn't seem like something super unique. And then I heard about um, the in-between trying to open and the neighborhood being upset about it. Mm. And just the community not being super accepting that everyone deserved hospice care at the end of life. So I was just really interested and motivated to get involved. And I started volunteering not too long after they opened. I I just really didn't understand why we didn't feel everyone deserved that dignity um, just because they didn't have, you know, income. They didn't have insurance. But I I still just didn't see how that meant they should suffer and die alone on the streets. So I, I worked as a volunteer for a while 
and then um, was hired on and I was doing events and got promoted into, you know, other positions. And I became the executive director a couple of years ago. And that's the way to get an executive director, don't you think, Kelly? Because she has been through every step of the way. I always say that she's gone from um, everything, our events to cleaning toilets, to moving <laughs> residents around in rooms, um, to helping really shape and guide the agency. So I 100% agree. <laughs> so Kelly, how about you? What's your background and how did you end up in your current role? Yeah, so nonprofit work has been something that's been a lot um, of my adult career, uh, career basically. Um, I, too, had had um, a father pass away um, when I was younger and on hospice care and then was blessed enough to be around other family members during that time. Um, and then when it got to the point where I didn't have anyone I was caregiving for, I sought out some volunteer work within a hospice agency. Um, my, my passions and love really do fall around volunteer administration, nonprofit management, and work. And so when I was looking to leave um, another nonprofit after six and a half years, I um, had been watching the in-between um, develop and grow, and it just so happened to fit together and has truly become a passionate uh, source and force for me in my life to be here for people either at the end or, as Jillian said, catching them before they get to the end. Now, Jillian, you mentioned you're, you're not a homeless shelter and you're not actually a licensed hospice either. So how do you kind of fit in with uh, places that are those things? Correct. So we have two different parts to our program. Half of our building is a state-licensed assisted living facility, and the other half is zoned as Elamocenary or congregate care. Um, the, the determining factor between which side of the facility you're going on is just if you're needing medication management and assistance with activities of daily living. So that's like toileting, clothing, feeding, things like that. Um, and since we're not zoned as a shelter, that really just means that we're not accepting walk-ups um, and that it needs to be a medical referral. So that's, that's really the big difference between us and a shelter. And it, it also really allows us to make sure that we're prioritizing the people that really need our services the most. Shelters are, have really agreed to take people, you know, if they show up and there's a bed open, they have, you know, they're required to take that individual and they serve a really great purpose. Since we're providing medical care for these individuals, it's important to us that we're taking in the highest needs individuals and that we have an assessment process before taking them in. And do you usually have a waiting list? I mean, is your facility full most of the time? It is. If, if there are any beds open, they are already slated for someone and we're just either waiting for their doctor to get their medical records over or their pre prescriptions to arrive. Um, and occasionally we do lose individuals who are supposed to be coming in. They maybe lose their phone or they don't get their ride up here. So if a bed is open, it, it's it's already slated for someone. Um, right now, I guess, is a good um, as a good number for you is we have about 13 people on our waiting list ready to come mm -hmm. in. And Kelly, maybe you could talk a little bit about, uh, Jillian mentioned that, you know, when the in-between first opened, the neighborhood was a little concerned about, is this going to affect our home values? Are there going to be homeless people hanging out? How has that panned out over the last eight years? Yeah, so I mean, we met with some of that with the neighborhood when we first opened downtown at Goshen Street. Um, however, a lot of the more vocal um, opposition came when we were coming up to the Sugar House area. Um, and the best thing about that is, is after about two years of us being open and just really sharing what it is that we are doing here, um, the, those that were maybe a part of the, the opposition actually said, 
can't we all just be friends and uh-huh. uh, be here together? So, um, and supporting you. So I would say that um, there really is no YIMBY, yes in my backyard and NIMBY, no in my backyard anymore regarding the in-between. We are all friends of the in-between. We have seen neighbors literally come and bring us a gallon of milk once a week um, to bringing us um, homemade cookies over the holiday season. Property values have not gone down. Mm. If anything, they've actually increased. So for this local, local community right here, we've actually um, lessened the traffic flow because we don't even have as much staff um, as the place before us did. And we really are doing our mission here, which is allowing people the chance to recuperate and the chance to to have a peaceful end of life. And Jillian, you kind of talked about this, but, you know, maybe a little more detail. Who do you serve and who can you not serve? Yeah, so as long as someone is um, experiencing homelessness in a medical crisis, they most likely qualify. However, since we are a state licensed facility, individuals can need a higher level of care that we can't accept. Mm -hmm. And that would be individuals that have dementia, um, so they're needing memory care, and also people who are on IV antibiotics. Those are really the the two main things. Um, And then a group of individuals that we choose not to serve because we want to, again, serve those that are in urgent need is long-term care patients. So those are individuals who are on, let's just say, dialysis, and you can be on dialysis for many, many years and live a good, long, healthy life. Um, We could have them stay with us for a period of time to recuperate, um, but we would then want to place them in a long-term care facility. So, Kelly, if somebody does kind of qualify along all of those lines that Jillian just talked about, what are the rules once somebody is accepted? It's not just uh, come on in and you can do anything you want. There are there've got to be rules, right? Right. We are a community and um, we, we live by that value of being a community-minded facility with respect and dignity for everyone. Um, and so we do have house rules. Um, we are a sober living environment and that is because we also have potentially 49 other residents who are also um, trying to not relapse or trying to stay away and actually um, find a different path for them. Not everyone who comes to us does have a substance um, use disorder, but we do need to maintain that sobriety. So that's one of the biggest things. Um, A few of the other kind of house rules that we have, um, we've got some different things about, you know, storing a lot of food in your room, um, where we can smoke on property, um, to the point of who opens the front door um, and how you sign out so that we know you're going to a doctor or you're picking up a prescription and that you really need the bed here. Um, So we do ask residents to be back by 10 p.m. if they're going to be out for any reason during the day. But that way we know who's home. We know where everyone is. And again, it is a family, community-minded atmosphere here. Um, We're all really looking out for each other. I see that not only amongst the staff and the volunteers, um, but it's resident to resident trying to check on each other and and make sure that they're doing okay, either physically, emotionally, or mentally. Um, So yeah, we do have some house rules um, that people do follow um, as we go through this. And again, it's all about the safety and security and getting better or, again, having a peaceful end of life. Yeah. The last time I talked to you, I in my mind, I envisioned this place as a very quiet kind of, you know, hospital slash rest home. But it sounds like it's really not like that at all. It really is a community and a family. Yeah, and it, it depends on what time of day it is. So if it's Friday and there's bingo, it is going to be pretty loud. And there might be some hooting and hollering and cheering coming from the dining room. Um, If it's the weekend, there might be karaoke going on and it can get pretty lively. Um, Again, most of these individuals are sick and needing to recuperate. So it is 
generally quiet. You would never guess that there's 50 individuals here because you probably rarely see more than, you know, a handful of people out unless there's some sort of an activity. Um, but it is generally a peaceful and quiet place. And I think the mood can really change. As Kelly mentioned, if someone is, you know, going through that peaceful passing, it mm-hmm. does seem to kind of change the energy in here and everyone knows what to expect. And I think it can kind of change the mood in here a little bit. But um, it is a really strong community. And I think everyone really bands together when when someone's going through something or if someone's leaving the facility, whether it's, you know, discharging to housing or if they are discharging back to the resource center. Um, it's awesome to wa- watch people gather around and, and support each other. So, yeah, it just it depends on the time of day. Yeah. And Kelly, what sort of events do you have for the, the people that are living there? And then what sort of events do you have as far as fundraising goes? Yeah. So just like any um, probably typical assisted living or nursing home, there's a full activities calendar. Um, and, and any given month, we could be doing things from going down to the Visual Arts Institute and actually participating in a pottery class. Um, our residents love to go bowling, too. And it's great when we see people um, who have a newly amputated leg say, I still want to go bowling and I want to check this out. Um, so we do off-site property stuff. We go up to the Fine Arts Museum as well. Um, we We've been to Echoes Theater for some different plays. Um, We just saw Mamma Mia over the holidays as well. But on-site activities, they do stem from support groups, such as Celebrating Recovery, some grief support groups, as well as our arts and crafts. Um, So many talented individuals are living with us, whether they draw, um, they're a crafter, a DIYer, or they make jewelry. We actually have a full jewelry program, which is called Beating Hearts Jewelry, which did start um, back in 2015-ish when we first opened by volunteers just making some jewelry with residents. Um, and it's gone into such a big program. They have their own room on site. Um, the jewelry room is open a couple days a week. And residents actually want to make stuff that we can take to different events and fundraisers or outreach to um, take a donation on so that they can support back to the program. They also make really beautiful stuff for them and have opportunities opportunities to to even make something that they could leave for a child or a next of kin. Um, So those are a couple of those fun things there. And then what ties into that are the fundraising events. We do have um, two that we do as um, full fundraisers um, twice a year. The first one is in the kind of early summer, um, late June or early June, late May. And that's our tune-in concert where we bring together local artists, local food. Um, We have a great venue that we found in Sandy. Um, It's an outdoor space. So we've been going there and not only showcasing some local talent that really does support us, but really letting people know what we do and tuning them into the concept of the in-between. The other fundraiser happens every October. It's the second Friday of October, and that's our annual casino night. And that is where we pick a different culture, place, um, location around the world or the country that has a different and unique way of celebrating not only life, but death. Um, And we bring in those rituals and um, some of those different things, such as when we went to Polynesia, we brought in a family of dancers to show the funeral dances that Mm -hmm. they do throughout all the islands. Um, This last year, we just had a candle lighting altar um, as we were in Old San Juan and had 122 candles lit on a staircase, Mm -hmm. remembering all 122 lives that have passed away with us. Um, And then our third event is our annual um, birthday and anniversary which we don't actually raise money at. 
that's a chance for us to say thank you to the community and come and have a party on our property, meet our residents, and we even bring in a really big water slide. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then we just have some other groups that do fundraisers for us throughout the year. We've been blessed to be selected for the Matrons of Mayhem, Drag Queen Bingo um, the last couple of years. Um, We've done some other... um, pints for a purpose and some other fun things that others are doing to raise awareness and money for us. That is so great. That's so much more than I expected. (laughs) We're speaking with CEO and Executive Director Jillian Olmstead and Community Engagement Manager Kelly Miramet. And the website is tibhospice.org. It's the in-between. Yeah. Jillian, maybe you could talk about outcomes because, you know, my first... um, impression of the in-between when I first looked at your website a couple of years ago was, oh, this is a place for people to go to get their end-of-life care. But that's actually not the the case for most of the people you serve. Right. Yeah. I, I think we initially thought that we were going to fill our beds with hospice patients. And, and it has really turned out that the number of people on hospice in our facility is really staying about the same from year to year. And our medical respite numbers continue to go up. So last year we served 136 individuals, and that was a 35% increase from the year before. And and we're averaging about 15 peaceful passings in our building every year. I think it's a it's a good thing that the number of individuals um, that die in our facility is not continuing to go up. We we Absolutely. really hope that our medical respite side of our program is is making a big difference in keeping individuals from getting into that end-of-life stage. And that's the one thing that we, we want to absolutely prevent is someone dying by themselves on the street. That is just so sad. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's our, the number one piece of our mission. Um, if there is someone that is needing hospice care and they are unsheltered, they are going to go to the top of our list, and we're going to do everything our, everything in our power to get them in as soon as possible. Um, if someone is undocumented, unfunded, uninsured, um, we're able to utilize Intermountain Health Hospice Program. They provide charity care for those individuals. So there really is no reason, at least in Utah, for anyone to die on the streets without, you know, uh, some compassionate caregivers, a bed, and good hospice care. It's the in between, and the website is TIB, the in between, uh, the in between, uh, you know letter of each word, hospice.org. So TIBhospice.org. I made that more complicated than it needed to be. Uh, do either of you have some stories about uh, memorable people that have stayed with you recently? Yeah, I want, Ke- I'm, Kelly is the best with our storytelling, okay. but I do want to say that I, I would love to encourage everyone to go over to our website, to our stories page, because we had an amazing um, 25-minute documentary mm. made from a Belgian TV crew, a, a Belgian news station, and they did such a good job capturing about five of our individual stories, and they they got what most of us don't even hear, and that's the stories directly from the resident in their rooms, um, just kind of the raw, really direct question and answers that even us as staff don't often hear, and it's just, it's beautiful. If you have 25 minutes, I I can't recommend going and watching that enough. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> That does highlight a lot, and just to kind of dovetail off of that, um, some of the other videos and stuff we have um, this this September, or last September, I guess, now that we're in the new year, um, we had a resident who had been with us just over two and a half years. Um, Part of that length of stay was due to the pandemic and everything, but the other part of it was that Patty came in on hospice with six months left to live. Patty left two and a half years later in remission. Wow. Wow having received treatments and surgeries, 
She removed the tumors that were um, dislocating her face and everything, and she moved into permanent supportive housing at Switch Point. That is one story that I just, it gives me chills to continue to think about. Her coming in literally with that stage four diagnosis of there is no more treatment. You right. do not have even the physical ability to go through treatment. But what we see is people stabilizing. That's another reason that I think contributes to our numbers of deaths staying is that even tomorrow we have someone else moving out into housing who no longer uh, qualifies for hospice. Um, We have people pretty much all the time that come in with that hospice diagnosis, but now that they have access to care, access to medication, and access to just love and compassion, they start to stabilize, and then treatments can be an option. It may not reverse everything, but it can give them option, longevity, and some hope for something different. Last time I spoke with both of you, um, one thing that I hadn't even occurred to me is that somebody who's maybe not you know, at death's door but is undergoing cancer treatment, they can't undergo that treatment if they don't have simply an address. If they're homeless and they don't have a permanent address, they can't even get the care that they need. Right. That is um, a lot of the factors that surround that is is that cancer doctors want to make sure that the person is going to be safe, right? Um, We know that um, individuals going through cancer treatment have weakened immune systems, lower antibodies to fight off general, even common colds, let alone COVID, right? So we've got individuals out there who need the safe space to be um, not have any germs coming into their to their space and their their ability to impact how they're going to recover from the next round of chemo mm-hmm. or individuals even um, qualifying for certain radiation treatments, which literally is radioactive material, basically. And they need separate restrooms for a while. They need special diets for a while. These are all things that you cannot get in um, the services that we already have in our community. Not that those services aren't um, good and needed. Our shelter center, resource centers are needed. They are good. We just have the medical bed where they can also plug in their oxygen concentrator Mm. or maybe the mini fridge to store their insulin and the needles and sharps that they need to get the insulin into their body. Um, So there's a lot that plays into that as well. But um, one of the other news media pieces that we um, were able to be listed in this year was of an individual who literally was living in a tent in the park, yet he got up every day, put on the cleanest suit outfit he had to try and seek more and more cancer treatment. But he was getting too weak in his body and treatment was about to to be stopped because he needed a safe place to go home to every night. Yeah, a tent is nowhere to live when you're going through all of that other stuff. No. Jillian, you mentioned that you've got a waiting list. It doesn't sound like it's hundreds and hundreds of people, but is, is there any talk about expanding the services at all? Yeah, we would love to revisit the zoning. So this building could easily um, have 72 beds. When we purchased the facility, the the new zoning prohibited us from going above 50. So we would like to revisit Mm. that. It's always great when we can use these older buildings to their maximum capacity. And we really feel that 72 beds would serve the need in the community. Um, We did previously have a much longer wait list, but that was partially because we didn't have the staffing to get through all those referral calls and comb through all of the medical documentation. And and we now have a dedicated full-time individual who their main job is just to answer referral calls, go through the faxes of the medical records, and be able to get through the list much faster. So that's why we can really say there's not a huge waiting list because we are able to say yes or no to 
individuals quickly. And the people who are yeses, we can get them onto this much shorter list. And I think it, it helps individuals um, when they can get an answer and it helps the hospitals make decisions as well. Um, but yeah, we don't want to say no to individuals if they qualify just because we don't have the space when, when the building has the space. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this you know, invisible zoning rule is preventing us from using it. Yeah, most places, most nonprofits that want to expand and offer more services have to talk about building more space. You already have the space. It would just be a matter of changing that zoning law. That seems like a no-brainer to me. Yes. Yep, I agree. It's something that we're pursuing. That, you know, following the zoning change means um, fundraising more money. So our yeah. budget is about $2 million a year, and that would be increasing our beds by about 50%. I don't anticipate us needing to raise a full 15% because a lot of our costs are going to be here no matter how many people we have. Mm-hmm. Um, but the majority of our costs are staff. We get we offset a ton of our costs with in-kind donations and volunteers. And, you know, we're, we're very resourceful, as most nonprofits are. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's a two-part, but we'd like to start the zoning change and then start seeking some additional funding commitments. So, Kelly, maybe talk about that. How can people help as far as uh, making donations of money? volunteering their time. I noticed on your website you have a wish list, which is great because people can go and buy exactly what you need. Right. And that wish list um, has, has items that um, really can fit for any uh, anybody's budget. So that maybe, you know, it's a box of tissues that you add into your weekly grocery shopping um, that we can bring up here so that we're not running out of tissues either during the cold and flu season or when we have maybe a lot of um, passings as we did in December. Um, So there's basic things such as that. Think of anything you would need to run a normal home and times that by 50, right? Because that's what we're going through here. Um, And even times it by more because sometimes people are moving in and then moving out right away. So we've got a lot of those opportunities. The other um, increased benefit um, to even financial donations is that Venmo has actually opened up for charities and nonprofits now. Um, it was always in a test pilot phase, but um, we actually have Venmo now, and um, it's able to be tax-deductible receipts. So there's a great new option um, for people who want to maybe add that into their um, monthly giving mm-hmm. um, or their one-time giving. Um, sustaining donations really do help us, and those are just reoccurring donations. So thinking about you know not having a cup of coffee from um, a coffee shop once a week allows you to maybe give $5 you know, a week or a month, basically basically, to something like the Mm -hmm. in-between. So we've got some of the different financial things. We also have um, some planned giving opportunities um, and some major gift campaigns. And what that really does is allows people to um, look beyond, right? Um, Are there estates or different things that they want to put in the name of the in-between? Are there larger gifts that people are looking to um, secure for for their financial, you know, tax purposes or whatnot. We want to work with people that way. Um, volunteering is a really great way as well. We've been doing a lot of work to kind of um, reshape sort of how volunteers engage only because we're, we're older now. Um, we've, we've learned a few things along the way and we serve more residents. Mm-hmm. So every volunteer um, that spends time with us is contributing to expanding the access for every individual to receive safe medical housing, basic needs, and access to critical health care. So volunteers help us drive residents to doctors or to even the outings we go on to help people with their well-being. Hmm. Um, volunteers help us with keeping the building clean, um, our landscaping and our yard since we have such an expansive property. But then we have volunteers that are literally trained to sit bedside um, when someone is actively passing 
NOA. Um, and that is our No One Dies Alone program, the NODA, N-O-D-A program. So we have a training and people go through that. And once an individual enters an active dying phase, 24, 72 hours sometimes, we will call upon those volunteers who are just kind of waiting for the next person. And they will come in and we will staff their bedside 24-7 for as long as we need to with staff and volunteers just for the point of nobody being alone when they take their last breath. I'll bet those volunteers are amazing people. <laughs> they pretty much are, <laughs> yes. And we love it, too, because not only do they do that, they're looking for other ways to even get on property um, just so that they can meet people before they get to the end. Right. Um, and so that they can, you know, help establish kind of that relationship with everyone and and uh, what they can kind of do and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's it's... It's just really unique, and sometimes I find myself running out of the words to really express how important this type of work is and how important it is for the community to get involved because we're all just humans, and this is literally an intersection here of people fighting to stay alive, fighting to to not go, or fighting to say goodbye because they want their nightmares to end. Wow. Jillian, last word, anything you'd like to add? I don't know if I can say it better than Kelly. <laughs> it was pretty good. <laughs> um, but, but I agree it's easy to come to work every day and, you know, see the difference we're making in everyone's lives here. You know, people celebrating holidays the first time ever sometimes. Um, and people really just experiencing genuine care and genuine care and love for the first time. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of this organization. And as Kelly mentioned, we wouldn't be as good of an organization as we are without the community. So, yes, we just welcome more people coming as volunteers and um, financial contributions keep our doors open as well. So, uh, you know, if the community can keep banding together around this amazing mission, we'll, we'll be here for years to come. And if there's yeah. a zoning out expert out there who's willing to volunteer some time, <laughs> let's, get, let's get that come person involved. Come on down. <laughs> yes, we always we say you, you got to come and you, it's, not, it's one thing to see it, but you also got to smell it. Ah. And what we mean by that is it does smell good and it doesn't smell typical. And ah. our kitchen staff is amazing and our cleanliness. So come visit us. The In-Between, we've been speaking with CEO and Executive Director Jillian Olmstead and Community Engagement Manager Kelly Miramet. And the website is tibhospice.org, The In-Between. Thank you so much for the good work you're doing in our community. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was good to talk to you today. Thank you for listening to All Along the Wasatch with Mike Parsons. If you would like to submit a request to be a guest on the show, please email mparsons at ksl.com. That's mparsons at ksl.com. 